0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Today, my guest is Brianna Blackett. Brianna is a country girl from Bathurst who worked her way up from country TV to become an international journalist for Al Jazeera. But that's not what she does now. She has an even more demanding, high-powered job these days. Today, she says she is a speech therapist an occupational therapist, a behavioural therapist. She's a developmental psychologist, a teacher, a lobbyist. She's also a detective, a specialty chef and a cleaner. And she's also a bus driver, a poisons specialist and a pharmacist. She says she works in a laundromat, in recruitments, in waste management. And at times she works as a neurologist, a gastroenterologist, an office manager, a dietitian, and a sleep scientist. In other words, Brianna is a carer for her two boys. Both have autism. And when they were diagnosed, she returned to Australia and brought them up as a single mum. Her boys, Max and Freddie, are now teenagers and Brianna is a full-time carer for them while also working as a disability advocate, trying to help her boys overcome what she calls the soft bigotry of low expectations. And she's part of the team that put together the Disability Reporting Handbook. Hello, Brianna. Hi, Richard. Tell me a bit about your childhood, growing up in Bathurst in country New South Wales. What was that like?
0: I actually think looking back, it was quite idyllic. At the time, I was probably a bit bored because I would, you know, hear about what people were doing in the cities. But um, in retrospect, I was never bored. I was always doing something. We had a yard, we had bikes. My dad would always give us lots of sporting equipment. We had uh, badminton things and, you know, volleyball and we played hockey around the clock almost. Bathurst is known <laughs> for its hockey. Uh, you know, I would think I was playing by the end of it hockey seven days a week, um, you know, thanks to the taxi service of my parents.
1: Yeah, so it's make your own fun in other words. It is, yeah. it
0: is. It really was. So it was, country, to me, classic country living, you know.
1: At a young age, you were quite a young age, you were introduced to the whole idea of caring, I suppose, in a lot of ways, going out to Canamble, you know, a good, few hours away from Bathurst to visit your grandmother. Tell me about that and the kind of care she needed.
0: Yeah. Uh, my my grandparents were out at Canama, which is about four hours west of Bathurst. Um, it's, uh, you know, um, after my, my grandfather died, not long after my grandmother started to show signs of Alzheimer's. Um, I don't know what the service are like now, but at the time there wasn't that much around. It's a small town, you know, out on the edge of, of, you know, red dirt territory. Um, so uh, my parents would pile us into the car after school on Fridays and we would travel on out to Canambal and we'd spend the weekend... Oh, well, I'd spend the weekend playing. My parents would spend the weekend preparing my grandmother for the week ahead. And what did that involve? uh, Just making sure her clothes were washed and the food, the house, you know, the house had, um, you know, the pantry was full of food. Uh, The wood was cut because my grandmother had one of those wood-burning sort of ovens, um, just making sure bills were being paid and that generally um, the house was in, you know, suitable condition for her to to live the next week until we came back again.
1: And who chopped the wood? Was that you?
0: Well, my dad chopped the serious wood. Right but we all had little axes. Little uh, tomahawks. Little (laughs) little tiny axes. My sisters and I would stand next to him and just hack away at splinters and and chop our own little bits of wood. We would also chop down the bamboo. There was a lot of bamboo and so we'd build stuff with bamboo and lots of, you know, cricket wickets and all that kind of stuff and the occasional teepee. Um, But, yeah, we (laughs) would help Dad chop uh, for what it was worth, I would say.
1: What do you remember about her house, sleeping and staying in that house?
0: Yeah, the house, I, I thought it was magical. Why? Because it was one of those classic houses that you have out in hot places where you have like this inner section where you have the main living and sleeping areas for the adults. So the, the kitchen and the, the, the I guess, the lounge room and the main bedroom. And then all around the outside of the house, you would have verandas that you would mostly hang out on during the day, but that's where the children slept. And, and in the verandas, there wasn't glass along the windows. It was just fly screen, most of which had sort of degraded over the years. And then these old wooden shutters that would come down on the outside in a dust storm. Um, they were also mostly falling apart too. So we would, it was almost like camping for us because uh, we would have the fresh air um, at night. The animals would get in through the, through the broken areas of the wire. And, and if it rained, my dad would come out and push all the beds together and cover us with tarp so, so cover that we you with a tarp. Cover us with a giant tarp <laughs> so that we wouldn't get wet from the rain. Uh, to me it was uh, fantastic. It was so exciting. Um, but looking back at it now, I think I think it was the early makings of glamping. I would say Richard. glamping was <laughs> yes, it. Well, yeah. those
1: those country porches are just like the most heavenly places to be at, at dawn and dusk, mm, aren't they? Yeah, that time of day when the whole world is changing and the low hanging sun comes through. That's a beautiful time to be. Absolutely on those
0: beautiful. And we were on the last house on the edge of town, so we were near the weir. And all through the night, you would hear different animals wake up and go to sleep according to what was happening through the night. So you could almost set your clock by what animal was waking up. And, of course, my dad frightened me with stories of min-mins out on the horizon. So <laughs> if I'd wake up, I was really careful not to look out through the screen in case I saw a min-min because I was super scared. of. I don't know why, but I was super scared of seeing a min-min.
1: How about frogs? Were you scared of frogs?
0: Frogs. I love frogs. We we I have a good relationship with frogs. <laughs> it wasn't uncommon for us to wake up and see frogs on the patio around us. And we also had a toilet that was out outside so um, when we would go to the toilet, we'd have to um, check underneath the (laughs) rim of the toilet to make sure there were no frogs in there. My sister actually got bitten once. Not bitten, I think it was trying to get out, but her... Her butt was blocking, <laughs> blocking the exit.
1: Right. So, so this is a horrible thing to ask, but I just wonder what noise a frog makes when when a toilet when a seat toilet seat comes down on top of it. Does it make a? Uh, noise?
0: well, I think uh, they sort of they see us coming and they hide. Oh, they... And then, um, but that's why you've always got to put the lid down. Always put the lid down.
1: I don't think I'm. I think I'm going to be looking for that for the next few days now. <laughs> my, my my own inner city apartment. Um, did this set a kind of an example for you, though this this idea of going out and looking out for your grandmother, caring for her?
0: Yeah, I think it did. Without knowing that I was being shown a way of being and a way of, um, um, you know, supporting people, I think it definitely meant that when much later in life, um, you know, the call came to 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 be of service to my own kids and family. Um, it wasn't. It was a no-brainer for me. It, this is what you do, you know. And I think it was a very. I think my parents. It uh, was always about. I mean, even my, my dad was in um, a service organization. He was a volunteer you know, the whole time I was growing up for Apex. Um, he would build these cubby houses. I get so excited. He was building me a cubby house. These beautiful, like proper wooden structures. Um, and he would just raffle them off. <laughs> but, you know, Other kids, my... right. Other kids would have my dad's cubby houses. Yeah, you're um, fighting
1: off frogs in the toilet. Yeah, while exactly. He's building these lovely Cutting cubby Cutting down houses. my own
0: bamboo, you yeah. know. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think service, um, yeah, watching, watching my parents care for my grandmother, was definitely a very good uh, introduction to, um, to what it is to 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 help others.
1: So, just fast forwarding a bit, you went to Charleston University in mm. Bathurst to study mm. media or journalism. There, what was that like for you as a country girl walking into that that university on day one?
0: <laughs> um, first and foremost, I never wanted to be there because I was gonna get out of Bathurst as soon as I turned 18. I was going to go to college anywhere but Bathurst. But then, of course, there's this great course in Bathurst. So um, I reluctantly um, and thankfully, got a place there. Um, walking into um, the college hall the first day, I think I was i think I think was wearing track suit pants, Richard. I wasn't... You
1: had the old tracky decks on.
0: I was so <laughs> First day at like, uni and tracky was dacks. Nothing, there was nothing glamorous about me at all um, at that age. Um, and I remember walking into the room and it was filled with rather glamorous-looking people. people. Hipsters? <laughs> probably more. No, like, really, like, they were ready to go on air from day one. All right. And I remember looking at... At one person and <laughs> she had um, she had a kind of hat on and it was to the side. And I remember thinking... Like a beret, you mean? Like a beret, yeah. But at the time I probably didn't even know that's what it was, you know. And and I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm in the wrong room. How embarrassing. So I turned around, walked straight back out. On the way out I went into the lecture. He's like, where are you going? And I said, oh, I just had the most embarrassing thing. I walked into the wrong place. And then he walks me straight back into the same room and I thought to myself, oh, you're not in Kansas anymore, Bri, like this is this is another thing.
1: Yeah, so is this like your first experience hanging out with people who who didn't grow up with frogs under the toilet seat, <laughs> <Pretty> essentially? <much.
0: laughs> well, <We're laughs> playing hockey and with small axes. So it was, it was. And it was fantastic. It was so fantastic. But I think I was, um, I think it was my first sense of um, the the world I was going to be entering into, actually.
1: What was your plan at that point, given that you were studying Broadcast journalism. What Mm. did you want to do at that point with your
0: life? Well, I was going to be a serious radio documentary maker. Oh, you? Yes. yes. For Radio National. Yes, I was going to lower my voice an octave and and whisper like this when I was speaking. All right. Yeah, that was my plan. Uh, Didn't quite go to plan. As have you ever heard that saying? If you want to make God laugh, tell Him your plans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I just that to me sums up most things in my life. Um, So that was your
1: plan to radio docos, radio
0: docos, serious stuff, worthwhile. You know, and, and
1: what kind of work were you doing to put yourself through uni at that stage? Um,
0: I was doing a bunch of jobs. I um, I actually worked as a support worker for a, for a woman with disability. I worked at KFC for many years. I yep. think I was a veteran. I was probably the oldest person ever to be All working right. at KFC. And I also worked at a pet food factory. Um, really? A pet food factory, yes. <laughs> Like
1: soft or dry food? Are we talking about that? Well, it was that?
0: both. It, it was both. like right. um, Mostly dry, but it would sometimes come out soft. We had this room for what we call the extruders, in which um, uh, it is, <laughs> as you imagine, like it, it's, it was where the smackos would come out. That would be a bit, um, they'd go in wet and come out dry. And you
1: worked in the smackos factory? I worked
0: in a... I, It's the smackers, yes. It was for Uncle Ben's. And and then they had this huge assembly line with with um, oh, millions and millions and millions of little, little whisket things. I don't know if that was the brand of it, but tiny, tiny. And they would just shuffle past continually, day and night.
1: Were you doing quality control on I whiskets? I was.
0: My, my, my job was to pick out <laughs> the dodgy-looking whiskets. No.
1: Yeah. Uh, what's, what's a dodgy-looking whisket? A misshapen one or what? You know
0: what? I still remember. This is crazy. They could hire me today because I would still be good at this. It, it, like slightly green as opposed to brown. <laughs> So I would look I would look for the slightly green ones. <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah. So that's your job. That's where you learned to sort the smackos from the whiskets, uh, yeah. did you? In, in, <laughs> yeah, pretty in, much, in, yeah. A, yeah, What a fantastic job. So where did you go once you'd done your course for your internship? What was mm, that?
0: Mm. So part of um, what um, CSU would make you do in your final year was to do internships at radio and TV stations. And um, because I was going to be a serious radio documentary maker, mm. um, I thought if I... Put my name down last. So you, you were supposed to do two weeks of TV and two weeks of radio, but there were never enough TV spots to go around because, you know, fewer TV stations. So I thought if I put my name down last, I will miss out on a spot and therefore be able to do four whole weeks of radio. So this
1: was your plan to bypass TV? That was my cunning
0: plan to bypass TV. Right, okay. Yes, yes. And what happened? Uh, Well, my lecturer was even more cunning than I was. And um, when I ran into him about a week later, he said, oh, did you see the assignments? Oh, I hadn't actually because I just made an assumption that I wouldn't get a TV assignment. And I said, oh, I think I missed out. I put my name down too late. And he said, oh, no, don't worry, I put your name down for you. And I was so shocked that he had outwitted me, which shouldn't be a shock because I'm constantly being outwitted. But, you know, I was so shocked that I, all I heard was, blah, blah, TV, blah, blah, Wagga, blah, blah, start on this date.
1: Right. The big smoke, Wagga. The,
0: the right. Thing, absolutely.
1: So, so, so what happened when you got to Wagga then?
0: I rocked up at Wynn Television and I walked in and said, hi, guys, I'm your intern And they went, fantastic, half the people are off sick with the flu, can you do a story for us? And I'm like, sure, thinking they meant by the end of the week, um, they meant, like, by the now? end of the day. Right, now, right, yeah, now. right now. The Cameron was out in the car waiting. You need to go cover their story.
1: Wow. So as a reporter, you mean? As a reporter, like, like on-air reporter, right. yes. Wow. So do you, yeah. do you even remember what that story was?
0: I don't. I remember thinking, what have I got myself into? I'm a serious radio journalist.
1: So your college must have been so pleased with you getting that gig, <laughs> well, so, so quickly getting on air.
0: <laughs> well, you know, um, well, not really initially because I did get a call uh, a few we- a few days in um, and the, the switchboard um, receptionist, sorry, called me up in the office and said, there's someone here saying they're from your college, they need to speak to you. So I pick up the phone, oh, you know, hello, it's Brianna here and it's my lecturer saying, what on earth are you doing? And I'm like, I'm, I'm doing exactly what you told me to do. You made me come here. And he said, I didn't make you go to win television. You were supposed to go to prime television. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, oh. And he goes, they've been asking me where you are. And then I find out you're across town working for someone else. So when you...
1: So when you worked walked into Win TV, mm. they weren't expecting you at all. No,
0: in fact, they don't even have internships. <laughs> um, and but when I got off the phone, I said to my colleagues, "Oh, apparently I'm not supposed to be here." And they said, we were wondering about that." Uh, but as it turns out, if you walk into a place with enough confidence, they'll show you to your seat.
1: Pay attention to this. This is this is yes. <laughs> exactly. I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> yes. I need work, and you must give it to me. So it's not a bad uh, philosophy to run on. Now you this pretty quickly you were involved in serious journalism, quite serious. You <laughs> did a story serious. on a ram raid on a shop. What, I was, did, what was the story?
0: Yes, yeah, very serious ram raid. It was a rogue and angry sheep had escaped from, I'm assuming a truck, and it just went nuts going up and down the main street and basically ramming into every shop front. Every time it saw its reflection, it went at itself and it broke continuous windows along the street. And that was, um, I was sent to cover that story.
1: <laughs> Psycho sheep. Psycho Conducting sheep. ram raids. Yeah right in, in the main drag of Wagga yes, yes. so how could you get close to the sheep or was it just too dangerous Were, the sheep was had it, been
0: contained the sheep had been contained. Be contained so right. by the time i got there i was all about the the damage and what went wrong what went wrong
1: right and how hard is it to do a straight face piece to camera I like saying <laughs> the, the psychotic sheep went went crazy <laughs> down there. is it hard to do that without laughing i wonder
0: uh, you know what they're the fun stories though mm. aren't they like mm. they're the ones that you know you can actually enjoy yourself a little bit with so um no, I, it was just one of those stories that you just go, oh, I'll get it done and, you know. But that was the day that my parents decided to tune in and um, they, uh, they had come down um, to to visit and um, that's the story that, that when I'm, you know, oh, I'm working in this television station, I'm doing my own stories and they're great, they're so proud, They they turn up and they tune in. And that's the story they see.
1: Did they give you a helmet and a flak jacket for that story? <laughs> no, I should. Wouldn't
0: that have been great? Yeah, I should have been a press. Big press. A press, you know.
1: Let me through. I should be here. Yeah, right. I should
0: have done a mock-up behind me of the, everyone running after a sheep or something, you know. <laughs> Reenactment.
1: So let's fast forward again in your, in your fabulous media career. A few years later, you are working in TV news in London and then 2005 you are recruited to join the brand new TV news network Al Jazeera and your husband came with you too, to Qatar, to Doha, mm. the capital there. What was your first impression of that? Like cities like Doha and Dubai are kind of very strange places, very, very, very new cities. What was it like to suddenly go from London to live in a place like Doha?
0: Mm. The first thing that struck me was the colour change. The, the environment was a completely different colour. We were touching down on the plane and all of a sudden, uh, I looked out the window and um, there were um, the, the, everything was orange, like the you know it was a very sand. It's literally a desert city. So it's you know I'd come from sort of greys and whites of London, and I and it was now warm colours like orange and sand colours, and the sky was this intense blue. And so for me, um, I just broke into a smile. <laughs> because I was like, this is beautiful. I'm going to have blue sky again, you know, um, which I hadn't had for a long time in London. Um, I, I found um, found the culture quite beautiful. Um, I especially fell in love with the call to prayer, um, the voice of the muezzin who sings the call to prayer. Um, you know, I, I thought that was a beautiful concept of just stopping, you know, at certain points in your day and just I don't know, taking the time.
1: Have a moment of reflection, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a really lovely idea, actually. Yeah, in fact, yeah. it does become really nice once you're in a, in a Muslim city after a while to yeah. hear that call to prayer. There's something about it. I don't know. It interrupts the day. Not interrupts. It sort of punctuates the day yeah. very satisfyingly.
0: It reminds you that there's something else. Like you might be really buried in getting your groceries done or hanging the washing out or, or working in the whatever story you're working on. But every now and then something comes along and says, you know, there's something a bit more. So it's okay to stop right now and remember that.
1: There's quite a stratified social structure in Mm. cities like Doha. Mm. Tell me about the time when when you were pregnant with your first baby and you went to visit a local hospital for just a routine injection.
0: Mm, mm. Uh, So um, there is definitely a clear... um, uh, structure within Doha as to where women can go and where men can go and then where families can go. So these are places where women and men are allowed to go together if you have children with you. Um, for health purposes, when you're having a baby, there's a women's hospital. And uh, early on in my pregnancy, I had to get certain injections and so on. And I was sent to the women's hospital um, for those. I hadn't been inside... It before, so I was sort of just being shown into the inner area. My husband was not allowed to come with me, so um, because he's a man, so I uh, went by myself. And um, I was sitting in the waiting room to um, to you know be seen by the doctor. And um, uh, is it a gurney or a trolley? The, mm-hmm. the the beds that people are on in hospitals. Um, I noticed that one of those was being wheeled past me, and um, there was clearly someone on it, but I couldn't. But but they were covered with a sheet. It was very quiet, very silent. And I thought to myself, oh my God, she's she's died. This is this is awful. I'm in a maternity hospital and this woman didn't make it through childbirth. And and then, you know, she was being pushed along, and then behind her followed the little tiny cubicle of the baby inside that she'd just given birth to. And and I remember thinking, Oh, that poor child, you know, it's um, you know, it's gonna grow up without its mother. And a few minutes go past and then another gurney comes past with a woman, and you know, also completely covered by the sheets. And I thought, oh my god, like another woman has died. This is this is this is awful. And then her baby follows along behind. And then I happened a third time, and I'm starting to panic by this point because yeah. I'm like, so oh, I want my gosh. oh my god, oh my god, this is you know the mortality rate <laughs> here is just is just awful. What you know, this is. I, I was really starting to worry about you know what I was had to look forward to, uh, in you know eight or nine months time. And um, I think I mentioned something to someone else in the waiting room with me and said, oh, my gosh, this is, wow, this is not a good day today, is it? Like, you know, and, I, and, and the person said to me, oh, no, 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 some of the orderlies in the hospital are men. So when they transfer women between the birthing suite and the recovery room, they cover them up entirely. Those women are fine. They're just completely covered up and, you know, so that they don't accidentally get, be, get seen by a man. So,
1: How did you get embroiled with the justice system? in Qatar?
0: Um, Well, after I had my son, um, I, uh, you know, had six, seven months maternity leave and went to go back to work and I was determined to have a babysitter as opposed to a nanny. Um, And so uh, I hired a woman named Lakshmi. Um, She was an Indian woman who was doing babysitting, you know, with some of my friends and she ended up coming on board uh, with my family for three days a week. Um, the way, uh, the whole, um, foreign worker system operates in Doha, and, and I was a foreign worker. I was a foreign worker who was brought in to work for al Jazeera, is that you're effectively, um, sponsored by your employer to be there. You cannot work for other people. You have to only stay with your employer. Your employer basically has, um... Power over whether you when you come and go, you can't leave the country without your employer's permission, and they have to give you an exit visa, um, and so on. So this is the way it is for all foreign workers, but um,
1: but for powerless foreign workers, you can yeah
0: for power yes yeah
1: you you know you can sort of be the end up being the thrall of the person who's sponsoring you.
0: Yes, I think um, it does expose a lot of people to being very vulnerable to unscrupulous people. Mm. Um, So. yeah so I so Lakshmi became our babysitter, and one day she didn't show up for work, which was really unusual because she was always bang on time and uh, I phoned around uh, couldn't find her, and I think I called in sick or something to work that day because no one showed up and uh, in, later on that day, a friend of hers knocked on the door and told me that she had been um she had been arrested by uh, the police immigration police because her um, her she had basically run away from her sponsor um, you just need to google you know um, workers rights and you know any of the Gulf states and other parts of the world um, to find out that um, there are some really terrible things that happened to to, um, you know, workers. And, um,
1: and where did you find her?
0: I found her in a prison on the outskirts of town. So we were told that she'd been taken to a particular place. So my husband at the time and I just thought, we'll jump in the car and go see her, go get her out, post bail or whatever. We, we were completely clueless as to the way the system worked. So we jumped in the car. We drove on out to the prison, and um, which is right on the edge of town in the middle of the desert, and we... Um, we walked in and we said, "You know, we're, we're, we want to see this person. Where do we go?"
1: And what did they say to you?
0: Um, they said, "What are you talking about? No one comes to see people. This is almost—it was almost like a processing center rather than a prison or a court. The court is attached right next to the prison, um, and they—they um, they just looked at us like we were aliens. Like, what are you doing here? No one comes to get people out." And could you raise bail for her? Well. Um, That took many months, actually. Um, We went into the courtroom. We found someone who found someone who found someone who said, come with me and you can sit in the courtroom and wait. And the courtrooms are not like we have here. They are effectively just rooms with a desk at one end where the judge sits. And... um, and chairs where the prisoners are brought in. And we,
1: were you able to help her? Were you able to visit her in prison, in her cell?
0: Yeah. Well, basically, we were able to take things to her, um, and um, so we. The judge said to us, "Look, I can't let her out now because we don't have the laws in place at this point." But, um, but. You can bring things to her. So we brought her clothes and food, um, even cutlery. We allowed to bring knives and forks in for her, um, water.
1: And what did it take to get to see her in her cell? Um,
0: we were... Um, uh, look, it, it took months to get to see her. Then we got her out. But then shortly after, she was sent back in again. And that's when the real struggle became to get to see her because the judge had changed and we, um, we were up against someone who wasn't so keen to let us in. So um, I rocked up once they took her back in prison and with the usual gear, you know, clothes, blankets, what have you, and um, walked up and said, can I please see Lakshmi? And they said, no, you know, you can't. We've had a change of leadership effectively and we're not letting you in. And uh, I knew what the conditions were like in there from speaking to her previously. So I I really was determined to get these goods into her. Um, So I tried another guard, another guard. They were all saying no. And so I remembered that I had in my bag sanitary goods for women, hygiene products. A tampon. A tampon. So I pulled out the tampon and I held it up and I put it in front of the guard's face and said, you need to let me in to give this to someone inside. podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app.
1: So just before you were explaining how you went to get – while you were in Doha, you went to try and find your babysitter, Lakshmi, who'd been arrested because she lost her sponsorship to be in Doha. And you bluffed your way in to see her by wielding a tampon from your handbag. What effect did that have on the guard?
0: He recoiled, recoiled. It was like I was holding up a stick of fire. Um, and he just stood back and stepped aside. And I just walked in room after room holding this tampon in front of me saying, you need to let me in, you need to let me in. Or or, I'll, or, or, I'll, or else. This thing will
1: explode <laughs> or something, I right? Here.
0: I was banking on the fact yeah. that most Men are grossed out by the idea of it. And it worked until I came up against a female guard who looked at me as like, well, what's she trying to do here? Mm. So then I thought, well... Uh, you know, hey, guess what? Those All those guys over there told me to tell you to let me in to see this woman called Lakshmi. And did that work? It did work. Right. <laughs> so they went and got Lakshmi for me, and I was able to hand over the blankets and the clothes. And, so and what on.
1: became of it? Was she able to go home eventually?
0: Look, ultimately, um, we managed to get her out for a year. Um, and then uh, again, you know. <laughs> We, we, didn't, we weren't fully successful with, with everything because there really aren't any laws to let her out. Um, so she ended up being deported, um, yeah. But we, we basically requested it. But She wanted to go home and they said, as long as you pay for it, then we'll let her go home.
1: Meanwhile, you and your husband had your, your first child, mm-hmm. Max. How did you notice something was up with Max?
0: Um, I noticed that he didn't respond to my voice, um, you know, most kids by a certain age are turning to look in the direction of their mother when their mother speaks. Um, he wasn't doing that. He was a, 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 playful, um, happy child, but he just didn't turn to look at me when I called his name. And I remember one time I was starting to get worried about it. And I, I said his name 50 times, oh. 50 times. I sat there and went, Max, 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 Max. And he did not look at me at all. And I knew then that this was not typical.
1: So where did you go for advice? You are in Doha still at yeah, this point. Yeah,
0: yeah. I went to, um, I went to a paediatrician there um, and um, we walked in and she she looked at Max and talked to him and he didn't respond in the typical way. And um, then we had a chat and, and she observes him, you know, elsewhere in the clinic and then she turns to me and she goes, um, I'm not supposed to say this for a child this young, but your child has autism.
1: How did you take that in?
0: Um, I was relieved to hear it because I didn't want to be told by anyone else. Oh, it's fine. He'll grow out of it. We get told that a lot when you have a child, um, with developmental delay. Um, and, uh, I was relieved, but also your, y- your, world, your world just ends in that moment. It ends not in a bad way. It just stops being what you thought it was going to be. Um, and I was now in a place that I Was not familiar with. Um, I didn't know what it meant. Will he, will he ever speak? Will he ever understand that I love him? Will he ever be able to say help? Will he Mm. ever? And then we got ridiculous. We were saying, will he ever be able to go to a post office? For some reason, going to the post office was something we, we were talking about. Will he ever do that? Um, So
1: then you are the intrepid international journalist. Was it it like being? Sounds like it was like being dropped in a completely um, foreign country not knowing its name or what the language was with your son. Yeah, and time.
0: that's actually a really good way of looking at it, Richard, because that's often what I thought myself. It was like, it was like I was being um, projected to Mars and I had to learn a new language, a new way of being, um, a new way of looking at the world.
1: And what happened when you told your mum in Australia, find her in Australia?
0: Yeah, I called her up. My, I'm, I'm really fortunate my mum um, was a special needs teacher Um, So she had a career teaching children with disability, many of whom were exactly like Maxie. So I called her up and she said, don't worry, I'll be on there on the first possible plane. Um, She put in leave and um, flew out to Doha. In the time between putting in leave and flying out to Doha, I gave birth to Freddie. (laughs) So now there are two kids she's rocking up to support me with. So you've got two kids at this point. Two kids at this point, yeah. And what
1: did she say when she saw... Maxie, um, in, in the house?
0: Yeah, she said, um, right, first things first, we need to teach him how to sit. To sit? To sit. And I, I was like, no, 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 we need to teach him how to talk and how to, you know, you know. I had all these other you know, things that I thought were more important. And she said, no, 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 you need to teach him how to sit because if he can't sit, he can't eat at all. You know, eat a table, eat a meal at the table. He can't sit on the bus. He can't sit in the classroom. If we are to help him engage with, the world, he needs to be able to sit.
1: And how did you teach him how to sit? Um,
0: there are multiple things. Like, um, sometimes uh, I would sit in front of the mirror with him and sing, we, we sing to him all the time. I, we, my dad, I grew up with my dad singing silly songs to us, and I just started doing that with my kids. And so, I, we would sit in front of the mirror with my legs crossed, and he would sit in that little hole with his legs crossed, and and um, it, we I would just. Sing to him, and we'd look in the mirror, and we'd we'd um, do actions with our hands. It was almost like a way of making sitting possible because we were distracting him with um, other things.
1: And associating it with a nice feeling. Associating
0: with nice things, and yeah. and also um, we would have um, we would put so he'd sit at the table, and we'd let him have like a pillow or something, not heavy but weighted on his lap. This is before I knew what weighted blankets were, and so on. So that would just give him the sort of like, it was almost like grounding him. Oh, right, something's on my lap, I need to sit still.
1: How was he walking? What was his his, uh, mode of walking on his feet like?
0: He was definitely an early toe walker. What is Uh, is that? Toe walking is literally, as it says on the box, like he walks entirely on his tiptoes, which you wouldn't think would be a problem, but it does actually become a problem as they get older because it changes the way their muscles develop. And
1: And why was he doing that?
0: um, Well, there are several reasons that kids might do that. We think in Max case he was sensory seeking so he was putting stress on his body by um by by he he was getting sensation he was feeling his body imagine that you're numb oh
1: right so he's trying to put extra weight on that yeah he's putting
0: extra stress on his body to feel it see i'd Um, imagine
1: he'd be avoiding something some
0: people do it for those reasons but with maxi we we worked out that he was actually um doing it to sort of um to imagine you've been to the dentist and you're you get an injection because you're having a tooth thing, or what have you, and and your mouth is numb, your tongue is numb, and and then you know, as it starts to wear off, you, you're continually biting your tongue to see if it's back, you yeah, know, is it yeah. back? It's almost like he needed to, um, to feel his body and walking on his tiptoes, put. Gave him that, that sensation.
1: And once you started treating that by exercise, uh, massaging him, his yeah. feet and all that, how, what, what, how did you respond to that? Did that make life better for him in some way?
0: Yeah. So um, we, we, um, I met an incredible occupational therapist who showed me how to do... Um, so, so basically it's strange because he was he was doing that as he was walking but then he wouldn't let anyone touch his feet outside of walking um so um basically we basically need we need to do a lot of sensory um work with him so she taught me how to massage his feet in a way that he would just learn to relax and and um and be comfortable with touch and so um several times a day I would just get the cream out and we would call it cream on toes like we don't do cream on toes and I would massage his feet um, sing a little song that would just make up and you know um and uh, he just I could just see him go Ooh, like you know the power down, you know, and um, he came, he used to initially curl his toes right up when he was sitting and then by the end of it his feet would be relaxed, his body would be relaxed.
1: How was he with the written words, seeing uh, written word on the page or screen?
0: Yeah, look, he was um, really quick to grasp written words. um, When I realised that he had trouble, one of the reasons he wasn't speaking was he actually had trouble processing the sound and then processing the thoughts that would turn those into words. Um, He's always blocking his ears he'll never wear headphones I've tried that blocking his ears is his way to handle the sound and the level of sound coming in and out so talking to him wasn't going to be enough so then I put subtitles on the whole time every time the tv was on subtitles if I wanted to tell him something I would write it on a whiteboard um then we started my mother said to me we're not going to wait till he's five to teach him how to read and write we'll start now so from the age of two he was learning how to read how to write and it got to the point that um he was able to, to point words out. He had beautiful handwriting. This was before he started. Right, so he had
1: all these really uneven, uneven developmental things, way ahead, yes, way behind, yeah. way ahead, way yes, behind, yes, that yes. kind of thing. Because
0: you worked to his strength, which yeah. is visual, yeah. um, and we sort of compensated for the, for the challenges.
1: Meanwhile, how soon did, were you able to realise that your second son, Freddie, also um, mm. had autism?
0: Mm. I think I started to suspect it when I noticed that when he was sitting, his toes were curled up as well. Um, which is one of the things I've worked a lot with Maxi. So to me, it's the first time I saw him curling his toes up, I thought, oh, here we go, <laughs> here we go again. Um, thankfully, I knew what I was looking at this time around. Um, there was obviously a process when I realised, wow, now I have two. Like, um, how am I going to do two? Um, you know, I was living in a small, a small town in Qatar, Let's face it, it's the only town in Qatar um, where I didn't really have access to the support and the expertise that I needed. Um, my mum could only come and go, you know, to so many times. Um, so
1: you had to come home.
0: So, yeah, made a decision to, um, to come home.
1: And when you did, you came back as a single mum?
0: Not, not intentionally. <laughs> not intentionally, no. no, I, thought, no. I, thought, uh, I thought my husband, uh, now ex-husband, was going to follow but he chose not to.
1: So, how much harder was it to do it on your own?
0: Uh, a million times harder. <laughs> it's very hard.
1: And how were you doing? I mean, how were you doing physically with mm. the stress and work
0: of mm. all this? Because I'm,
1: I'm guessing you, you know, kid, little kids keep you awake at night anyway, and kids with on the spectrum uh, uh, often get distressed, and that keeps you awake too. Mm-hmm. But how were you going physically?
0: Uh, uh, not great, actually. And as most carers will tell you, um, you don't even check in with yourself to find out how you're doing. and it's Where are you going to
1: find the time? Exactly. Mm. And
0: also even if you know something's wrong, you don't have time. to. So so something's wrong, so what? You've still got things to do. Um, And and, what was wrong? uh, I was losing sensation in my legs and feet. Um, I was unable to open my hands in the morning. I would have to pry. If I had a finger free, I would pry the other hand open and then use that open hand to pry the other one. You know, um, things were really not working.
1: And what did you think was happening to you?
0: Uh, the doctors sent me for a whole bunch of scans because they thought I had motor neurons disease, um, which, uh, as you can imagine, is terrifying, especially when you're a sole parent of two children with disability. You, you just can't die. Oh. You can't die. You know, I, I can never die, Richard. Is that what you, you said know?
1: to yourself at the
0: time? I, I still say it now.
1: I can't have this and I can't...
0: I can't die. I can't have this. But I also knew that just because you've, you know, already struggling doesn't mean you can't struggle more. I've seen it enough, I've seen it in my you know in the reporting covering global news. you see bad situations getting worse, difficult situations not getting better. So I knew that there wasn't some magical thing that meant that I would be impervious to getting a terrible disease like this.
1: And what happened when the test results came in?
0: The test results came in. They arrived at my house first, which I was not expecting, and my my appointment wasn't until the end of the week. And so I had the envelope just sitting on my my kitchen table for for days. And um, I remember my sister saying, why, do, why don't you open it? And I'm like, because if I open it, I might have motor disease. It
1: was right up until that. Oh, I see. So you mean, if so long as you don't open that envelope.
0: I don't have motor you don't, don't, disease.
1: Right, right. Like <laughs> Schrodinger's cat or something. I, I just know. wanted
0: to buy myself a few more days of not having it.
1: And then when you did open it?
0: Um, turns out I didn't have didn't have it. And um,
1: What was wrong with you?
0: Exhaustion. It was just sheer sheer unchecked exhaustion um and the thing is my doctor when she opened it she's she saw the results I, I opened them with her you know it was almost like you know and the award goes to kind of thing and she opened it up and she goes oh my god you don't have it you don't have my neurosis here so I'm like yes like you can literally hear me cheering out in the street and um she goes no hang on hang on this can't be right I'm going to ring up and check the results, and I'm like, why can't you just be happy <laughs> with these results? Like, what? No, don't check. So she did check, and thankfully the results were correct, and I didn't have it. But then I'm like, whoa! I'm, I'm literally doing a dance in her in her um, sort of her room, and she said, no, no, this is very serious. You you, you didn't have that, but you, it's still very serious. You are ex- exhausted to the point that your body is stopping to work, um, and uh, we you know we need to. We need to think about what we can do.
1: Tell me about the day your son Freddie disappeared on you.
0: <laughs> you wonder why I'm stressed yeah, wonder why and exhausted stressed. because I have a very intrepid, very intrepid younger son. Um, son who likes trains. He loves trains and he loves the harbour bridge, trains and bridges and tunnels, and his favourite bridge is the harbour one. So uh, I, my eldest son was having what is often called a meltdown you know, he was struggling to cope. So I went to assist him, and my youngest son saw the opportunity to get out of the house straight down to the train station, which involves some very busy roads and traffic lights, mm. might I add. And
1: how old was he? How he old? was eight. He, he was eight. just
0: turned eight. And,
1: and how long was it before you could realise that he was no longer in the house, do you think?
0: Uh, long enough for him to jump on his first train and head into the city. So it was only, I would how say... How did he get on a train? He just, he knows. Ever since he, they were little, it was always been start as you mean to go on. So if I want him to learn how to use a train independently, I need to teach him now. So both boys know how to, you know, tap on and tap off and all that kind of stuff. Um, so what did you do? Did you
1: call the police? I
0: did. I did. I called the police and said, oh, my God, my son's missing. I think he's on a train. Um, and uh, can you help? And But
1: you've got another son who's I do. having a meltdown. I
0: do. Well, what I had to do is ring an agency, a support agency, because I am 100% on my own. I had to ring an agency for support workers and say, hey, can you please send someone to look after my eldest son so I can go looking for my youngest one? But That was actually one of the most traumatic moments when I realised I couldn't just go looking for him straight away.
1: And how long did that take before someone could arrive?
0: Oh, thankfully, thankfully there was someone only 15, 20 minutes away.
1: But meanwhile, the clock's ticking.
0: I know, I know. So I was just hope for, I was saying uh. to the police, get to the train station, get to the train station. Um, and... Uh,
1: so once the support uh, worker arrived, you could you mm, could go. Where did where yeah. did you go? Where did you go to I, find him? I
0: went to the nearest train station. Um, we uh, he wasn't there, but not surprisingly, he had a pretty big head start. And then um, I ran into the train station manager guy said, have you seen this child? And he's like, no, no, I'm sorry, I haven't. And I was like, Oof. and so I walked up and down the train station a bit. And as I was leaving, he calls me up and says, actually, you know, does he look a bit like this, a bit scruffy? <laughs> do you have an iPad? And I'm going, oh, God, yeah, that's my son, always scruffy. Um, so he said, come and have a look at the CCTV. And there's there's footage of him standing and waiting for the train with his iPad, filming it, and then getting on the train, <laughs> And heading into town.
1: So then could you locate that train?
0: Well, basically it was a game of, like, you know, crisscrossing the city. So we told the police, right, we've just got footage of him on this line but that was this long ago. So then we had to pull up all the different CCTVs of all the different places he might have got off at and when we'd find him, right, he's crossed the the platform. Where's that train going? And he basically had us chasing him all over the city while he was just having a good old time. And how did the police find him? they ended up having to stop and search trains. Um, once we realised... So you
1: th- brought all of Sydney's... I know, Your son brought all the Sydney's trains in- day, into chaos. That day,
0: all the people would have been moaning that, I wonder what the excuse they used. You know, was there a leaf on the track or did they actually <laughs> say, we are trying to catch a child who's done a runner?
1: <laughs> and, so, and so how did they find him?
0: Well, they basically eventually found the line that they think he was on, like which network of trains. And, stop and like trains. Stop, Stopping and searching. So I would listen. I, I had my like, ear to that little radio on the chest of, um, of the police officers, the one that was staying with me, and I could hear them do the, the search. So they would, you know, carriage one, a few seconds as they're walking through, clear, carriage two, clear. And then eventually they got to one they said, oh, we think we've found him. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. You know, like we were all like, you know, like we were too, too worried to get too excited at this point just in case it wasn't him. And, of course, they're talking to him, you know, Freddie, you know, um, hi, Freddie, hi, Freddie. And because he doesn't have that social language, he just ignored them. And then I grabbed the radio from the guy's jumper and said, hi, Freddie, it's mummy, it's mummy. And, and then I had this, oh, hi, mummy, coming back. <laughs> And we just all erupted. Yes! Um, so it was... <laughs> I aged 100 years, but it ended well. So
1: so what happened when you got him home then finally at, at large with the, with the police?
0: Yeah, well, basically what we decided to do was they would get him off the train and we would go meet him at that train station and pick him up. And I said to the police, whatever you do, like, you know, you let him know he is in trouble. You put him straight into that back seat. You don't give him anything fun to do. No sirens, no lights. Like, he is in trouble. So when I rocked up, everyone was looking... He was looking very contrite. Everyone was looking really serious. We get home... He goes to bed eventually. That's when I decide to have a look at what he's been filming on his iPad. And at the end are all these photographs of him and the police on the hood of the police car, like, you know, like with their thumbs up and the lights are clearly (laughs) on in the background. He's wearing a hat. You know, he's in the front. And I'm just like, right, he's had too much fun. He had the best day day ever. He had the best day ever. Throwing Sydney's public
1: transport into chaos. and, and,
0: and, and And almost, you know, giving his mother a heart attack. So... Yeah.
1: <laughs> Tell me about your older boy Max. He's fifteen now. Mm. About his love of cooking.
0: Max adores cooking, and one of the um, one of the beautiful things about watching him grow up is finding that he can be confident in this space. When you're non-speaking as he is, um, it's very easy to get. Marginalized, you know, because people just assume if you're not speaking, you're not listening. You don't have ideas and dreams and cares. You don't care. Yeah. You don't care. Yeah. Uh, and and so he spent a lot of the time just sitting at the back of the room. Um. But when it comes to cooking, he will walk all the way up. As soon as he sees you, getting a bowl out or food out, he'll come straight up to the kitchen table and expect to be involved. And now is at a point where he pretty much knows how to do some of his own things, and he um you know we're now at school working with the school and 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 so on about you know teaching him about commercial cooking and getting his own brand happening he sold his own stuff at the at the election day at a little fete outside the polling booth so yeah
1: how much help does he need with day to day life from you
0: yeah look he still needs a lot of help um you know he he needs um help with all personal care brushing teeth toileting dressing that kind of thing uh he's a big kid now he's oh, if, oh, look, I keep saying 5'10", but I've been saying that for so long, he's probably bigger than that now. Um, he uh, needs help communicating with others. Um, I know what he wants because I speak max, so to speak, but, um, you know, he really needs help communicating, so we're, we're working on that. Um, yeah, if he's to leave the house, he needs someone to go with him. Uh, so, yeah, definitely, um, definitely a lot of care. Oh.
1: One thing I, I've heard in the past from people who, who are involved in carers' organisations is they say it's, sometimes it's hard to get people who are carers to recognise that they are carers. Was that you?
0: Mm. I, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a carer. I well, you say,
1: I'm just a mum. I'm a mum. Yeah. This, is what, this is part yeah. of what I do.
0: Mm. Yeah, and it was only when somebody asked me if I was a housewife that I thought, well, no, no, I'm a housewife, I'm a... And that's their, their work, not mine, housewife. Um, I went to tell them I was a journalist. And then I was, oh, actually, I'm not. I quit my job a year ago. I, I must be a housewife. And I find my mum and I'm like, mom, oh, mom, I'm a housewife. Like, how'd that happen? And she said, no, no, you're a carer. And I said, I didn't even know what that was. So I argued because that's what you do when you're the child. You're like, no, I'm definitely not a carer, mom. I don't know what that is, but I'm not that. And then, um, and then I got off the phone and Googled it and said, oh, actually, I think I am. I'm a carer.
1: We think of carers as serving a very honourable role. And I know it's irritating to carers to have people say, oh, you're an angel, you're an angel because, you know, you're a human being actually and you get angry and exhausted like a human being does. But when we say we love carers and we honour them and we think they're marvellous, I wonder if as a society we really mean it. It's a bit like the way we talk about veterans, isn't it? Oh, thank you for your service and all that. Off you go. Don't bother us with mm. your needs. Mm. I wonder if you see it that way.
0: Look, I must admit I get a bit eye-rolly around about carers week time because I feel like there are a lot of platitudes wheeled out in that one week and, and as you said, there's a lot of thank you for your service to the carers. Mm. Um, whereas I think as a society we actually don't value any kind of caring truly. Like we, we, we genuinely think, yes, it's important, but we don't um, – I don't think we recognise or acknowledge it enough. And I'm talking about everything from, you know, nurses and teachers and preschool, you know, aged care workers, that kind of thing. Child care, aged care, care, all that In fact, we've
1: been start-up. in a kind of a continuous care crisis for the last, what, I don't know, 30, mm. 40 years or something mm. maybe.
0: Mm. So then when you have carers who do it for free or even, you know, less likely to get a seat at the table because we're not even being compensated. Not that you want to be. As a parent, you know, you, you do what you do. As you said, we just see ourselves as parents. But we're not typical parents because we can't do a lot of the things that we would have done because we have responsibilities um, that we that we are happy to do, but it does mean that your life is very different.
1: Normally, when we invite a guest on this program, it's not that hard for them to walk out the door, they just make some sort of arrangement. For a carer to come on this show, it's got to be booked well in advance. About nine, ten phone calls need to be made. Schedules have to be cleared. It's, It's not easy, is
0: it? It is. Your life is not your own. Your life is not your own. Um, and uh, I, you know, I used to joke in terribly, bad humor during COVID when everyone was really struggling with the whole lockdown experience. And I'm like, well, I've been prepping for COVID <laughs> for years because I always struggle to get out of my house, and it's difficult for me to get the groceries and to, and to, you know, it's not the first time I've had to homeschool. You know, really,
1: did you even notice lockdown? I wonder.
0: I'll be honest with you, lockdown actually brought a few things that we've been asking for for carers, such as telehealth. We've been asking for telehealth for years, and we. We didn't have access as carers. Um, but now, you know, since COVID, we're able to have appointments on the phone. So there's a few advantages that came from that um, for us.
1: Normally at this point, I might ask right at the very end, uh, how I might ask a guest how they see the broad future. But I think with the carer, I say, what do you see yourself doing at eight o'clock tonight?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Having a glass of
1: wine or something? <laughs>
0: yeah, something like that. I think it'll, I'll be rewarding myself for the fact that I made it through another day. Um, but i tell you something, you know, carers don't, Actually, we don't count the hours or the minutes or the days. Um, we just do. I, I, I don't know how else to say it. So, you know, I have a lot of joy in my life because of, because of my life, because of my family, because of my boys. And I'm not conscious still of the work that I do as a carer a lot of the time.
1: Finally, just a big shout-out to those police who helped you out that day with Freddie. Sounds like they were awesome people on that day.
0: (laughs) They were. We have a really good relationship with the police as a result of... And that wasn't the only time, dare I say it.
1: (laughs) It's been so lovely to speak with you, Brianna. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler.
1: abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.